We will be looking this afternoon at Job chapters 27 and 28. And I will read chapter 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people. In places forgotten by feet, they hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint, he overturns the mountains at the roots, he cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling, what is hidden he brings forth to light. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it, indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Uh, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come here in chapters 27 and 28 in Job to the second part of Job's final speech. As we saw last week, the first part of that speech is an answer to Bildad specifically. When Job says in verse 3, or verses 2, 3, and 4, how have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? He's using the singular form of that pronoun, you. So he's talking to Bildad only. But in chapter 27, when Job begins to use that pronoun, he uses it in the plural. 
So, for example, in verse 5, he says, Far be it from me that I should say, You are right. That's plural, not singular. Job is talking, therefore, to all his friends in chapter 27. And chapter 28 is a continuation of this discourse, then, to all his friends. So these two parts of, these two chapters belong to that second part of Job's speech, in which he talks to all his friends. The two chapters are quite distinct in their subjects. In the first chapter, Job defends and maintains again his own righteousness and integrity and insists that the suffering he is enduring did not come upon him because of sin. But in chapter 28, he does something different from what he's done before, not just in chapter 27, but he's not even done this in any of his other speeches before, and that is he asks the question, where shall wisdom be found? And he gives an answer to that question also in chapter 28. So the heart of chapter 28 is, where shall wisdom be found? Verse 12. So beginning then with chapter 27, Job defends his own integrity and righteousness in this chapter. The heart of this chapter is found really in verses 5 and 6. In fact, in 5b and 6a. Till I die, he says, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. And he doesn't mean just that he's going to continue in the way of righteousness for the rest of his life, but he means that he will not deny the righteousness which he has said he belongs to him in all his previous speeches. He says about this righteousness that if he would deny it, verse 6b, This would go against his conscience. I think we may take heart in verse 6 to be similar to conscience. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. He says, if I would do this thing that you, friends, want me to do, that would go against my conscience. My conscience would reproach me for the rest of my life for agreeing with you. Therefore, 5a, far be it from me that I should say, You are right. I'm not going to say it. In fact, he makes it very emphatic in verses 3 and 4. As long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Very emphatic. And he, in fact, makes it even stronger than that because he swears an oath in verse 2. As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, I will not say that you are right. So he swears an oath, and he uses the uh, standard form for the oath in the Old Testament, 
or pretty much the standard form. You know that in the Old Testament, the oath often takes the form, as the Lord lives. And Job says basically the same thing, as God lives. But he strengthens that oath, notice. He says, as God lives, who has taken away my justice and made my soul bitter. He says, as it were to his friends, I stand before God himself. The God who has taken away my justice, who has afflicted me in this way, contrary to my righteousness. I stand before the God who has made my soul and my life bitter with this terrible suffering, and I swear an oath before him, that one who has afflicted me, that I will not deny my righteousness. Obviously, Job's friends have not moved him an inch from his original position. What he has said from the very beginning of his conversation with his friends, he continues to say now, this suffering that has come upon me is not because of my sin. I will not admit it. I swear before God, I will not say such a thing. So that's the first thing he does then. He very emphatically asserts his own righteousness. The second thing he does, verses 7 to 10, is pronounce a curse on his enemies. May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. And he then describes... Uh, what he means by being like the wicked or like the unrighteous. He says, what is the hope of the hypocrite? He has no hope. Though he may gain much, ultimately God takes away his life. God will not hear his cry, verse 9, when trouble comes upon him. He will not delight himself in the Almighty he will cease ultimately to call on God because he realizes the futility of doing it. God will not answer him. And so what he's saying is let my enemy be like that. Let my enemy participate in that hopelessness of the wicked, in that refusal of God to hear his cry, in that inability of the wicked to delight himself in the Almighty. And I think that the point that Job is making here in these verses is, I am righteous. You are attacking a righteous man. You should beware, lest this curse come on you. He does not speak directly to his friends, just as his friends before often did not directly accuse him of sin, but implied it, in their descriptions of the judgment of God on the wicked. So Job does not directly curse his friends here, but he gives them a warning. He says, this is what will happen to an enemy of a righteous man. His lot will be like that of the wicked and the hypocrite. So it's a kind of warning, I think, that he's giving to his friends. Be careful 
what you say against me. And verses 11 and following then kind of continue along in the same track, but there is a break in verses 11 and 12, which shows us that Job is now thinking a little bit differently. He says, I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. He's he's going to teach them about God's ways and God's hand. And he says, you all have seen it. You know this already, or you should know this for yourself, but I'm going to say it anyway. But before I begin, let me say this. You have been behaving with, as our translation has it, complete nonsense or complete vanity. Your behavior has been altogether vain, is kind of the idea that he expresses here. So he says, I'm not going to teach you anything that you shouldn't know. Really, as we go through this, what Job says, we'll find out that they do know it and that they have been saying it, in fact. And what Job does then is describe in verses 13 and following the portion of the wicked man. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. So this is, he says, what happens to the wicked. This is what God does to them. First, verse 14, if his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. And his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. His children will either either die by the sword or die of famine. Those who survive him shall be buried in death. Those who belong to his household and survive him for a little time will nevertheless be buried in death. And his, not their, his widows shall not weep. That is, his widows will not lament for him. They will not be sorry that he is gone. So that's the first thing. His household will perish, and what remains of his household will soon die, and his widows will not lament for him. The second thing is that his wealth will be lost. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, and it's very interesting that Job puts that that way. He heaps up silver like dust, almost as if Job says this silver that he heaps up is, as, will be as valuable to him as a pile of dust. And he piles up clothing like clay. He may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. That is, everything that he gains during this life, he will lose, and the righteous will inherit it in his place. This sounds very like Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. Proverbs 13, verse 22, where Solomon says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So he he builds up a great pile of wealth, and it all goes to the righteous upon his death. It does him no good at all. That's the second part of the portion of the wicked. Thirdly, he builds his house, verse 18, like a moth, 
or some translations have like a spider. He builds his house like a moth or like a spider, like a booth which a watchman makes. I think the idea here is that his house is as fragile as a spider's web or as the cocoon of a moth or as a a booth, a very temporary booth that a watchman will build, for example, in the field to guard his crops before the harvest. He's not interested in building something permanent. It's a very temporary kind of shelter, sort of like the booths that the Israelites built on the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, for the Feast of Tabernacles. Nothing very uh, permanent at all. His house isn't going to last then, is the point here. It's going to be destroyed. And ultimately, verse 19, he will die. The rich man will lie down but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes, and he is no more. And the suggestion there seems to be that he opens his eyes on the other side of the grave and finds that he is with the dead. And so terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare He flees desperately from its power. So ultimately, the end of the wicked, the portion of the wicked, is judgment, destruction, death, and terror, and the loss of everything that he had in this life. Men then will clap their hands at him and hiss him out of his place. And that clapping of hands and hissing seems to be expression of derision. There's a um, verse in Lamentations chapter 2 which also speaks of clapping hands and hissing. And the idea there does seem to be uh, derision more than anything else. It's uh, Lamentations 2 verses 15 and 16. All who pass by clap their hands at you, he's talking about Jerusalem. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. So it's derision he will be derided by men. Now there's nothing very difficult about that. I think the difficulty arises when we ask, why is Job saying this? Isn't this exactly the kind of thing that Job was denying earlier in some of his other answers to his friend? Job has spoken in a number of places of the fact that God does not seem to judge the wicked, that God gives prosperity to the wicked, that they have a life of ease and peace, that they suffer no trouble, and so on. And Job is is therefore, uh, it seems like, contradicting himself here in chapter 27. In fact, some commentators have felt this so strongly that they've said, this is not Job that's talking here. 
This is probably, they say, part of Bildad's speech, which got misplaced, Bildad's speech in chapter uh, 25, which was, remember, a very short speech, and they say, well, this was probably the rest of Bildad's speech, or they even say this was part of the third speech of Zophar. This is the kind of thing that the friends have been saying to Job all along, and now all of a sudden we find Job, as it were, agreeing with his friends. But I don't think we have to resort to that kind of speculation, because at the very best it is speculation. These can very easily be understood as the words of Job. In this way, that when Job said before the wicked prosper, he was denying what his friends said. His friends were making the point, God judges wicked men. He judges them in this life. The only explanation for your suffering is that you must have sinned. That's the, that was the point they were always making. Whenever they talked about the judgment of the wicked, they were saying to Job, this is the explanation for your suffering. And Job kept saying, no, look around you, look at how the wicked prosper in this life. He did not then deny that ultimately the judgment of God comes on the wicked, and that's what he's saying here. Ultimately, the judgment of God does come on the wicked. He he never had denied that. The only thing he had denied was that his suffering was to be explained by judgment of God on him because God does not always judge wickedness immediately. You can't draw a straight line, therefore, from suffering to the judgment of God, suffering in this life to the judgment of God. But ultimately, nevertheless, the wicked will be destroyed. And what Job is doing then, here, is he's turning back on the friends with the argument they have made against him. They've accused him of sin and said, your circumstances are to be explained by the judgment of God on your sins. And Job says, beware. You accuse a righteous man of sin and say that this is the judgment of God on him. Well, understand that that's wicked. And this is the portion of the wicked. He turns it right back against them. He says, you want me to beware, I tell you, you should beware. Ultimately, the judgment of God will come on the wicked, on you too, if you do not repent of this sin against me and your sin against God in thinking that you can understand his ways. And that is the second part of the speech chapter 28. Now again, there's some difficulty with this chapter. The commentators note that there's no strong connection with chapter 27, though Job continues right on from 7 verse 23, 27 verse 23 to 28 verse 1. And there's no strong connection either with chapter 29, The chapter seems to kind of hang out there by itself. And some commentators speak of this as a kind of interlude, therefore, 
in Job's uh, conversation, in Job's um, discourses. And I think there is something to be said for that. You could look at this chapter, uh, you could take this chapter out of a reading of Job and read straight from chapter 27 into chapter 29, and I think you would not notice any major disruption in thought. There's a very natural connection between chapters 27 and 29. And this chapter does seem to kind of interrupt the flow of the thought somewhat. And so some commentators have concluded, well, this is an editorial insertion into the discourse of Job. It's not really Job talking here, it's the editor of the book of Job who has put this in here. Again, that's pure speculation and we should not go that route. We should take this as the words of Job. And then others say as well, and I think they have something to um, say for their position, that this is an anticipation of the Lord's words to Job at the end of the book, when he speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. The point that the Lord makes to Job at the end of the book is very like, if not exactly the same, as the point that Job makes in verses 12 and following of this chapter. The language that Job uses is very like the language of God in chapters 38 and following. But nevertheless, I think we ought to try to see a connection here with the preceding. And the connection is this, I think, that in a, in a sense, the argument between Job and his friends has been an argument about who is wise, which one of them understands the ways of God. The friends of Job have been saying, we understand the ways of God with you. And Job has been saying, you are foolish. You don't understand the ways of God correctly, and I don't understand Job wants that understanding, but he doesn't claim to have achieved it. In addition, the friends say to Job, not only do we understand the ways of God, but you can refer to the ancients, to people who have come before us, and you can see that they have said the same things that we have. This is not only our own wisdom, but this is the wisdom of the ancients. You find this especially in the speeches of Eliphaz. And we're going to refer here to three passages in Eliphaz's speeches. First of all, chapter 5, verse 27. Chapter 5, verse 27. Here, Eliphaz talks about how he and his friends are wise. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. So he says, I have wisdom and these other two who are with us here, they have wisdom too. You should listen to us. And chapter 8 then, verses 8 to 10. For inquire, please, of the former age and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words from their heart? So he says, not only we who understand these things, but the 
people of ancient times also understood them. And in chapter 15, verses 7 to 10, again, it's Eliphaz talking. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. And again in verses 17 and 18 of that chapter, I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen I will declare. What wise men have told, not hiding anything, received from their fathers. So the friends of Job have been claiming wisdom. They've been claiming to understand the ways of God with Job. And so, in a very real sense, the argument between Job and his friends is, who's wise here? Are Job's friends teaching wisdom? Or is Job the wise one who says, I don't understand the ways of God? And his conclusion is, look, there is no understanding of the ways of God, period, for anyone. That's his main point. Where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? It can't be found. There is no place of wisdom on this earth, to which man can no go. That's a profound and important conclusion that Job comes to here. And he's talking, remember, to his friends, and he's saying to them, you think you have achieved wisdom. Well, wisdom cannot be found. There is no place on earth where you can say, there is understanding. The wisdom of men, at the end of the chapter, is behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Wisdom is not to understand the ways of God. Wisdom is to fear the Lord and depart from evil. That's a very important and very profound conclusion that Job comes to here. And he's saying it to his friends who think that they can teach him wisdom. The problem is that what Job understands very clearly in relation to his friends, he doesn't understand for himself. And so in chapter 29, he goes right back to complaining about the ways of God with him and to saying, I wish I could understand what God is doing. And God has taken away my justice, and so on. He does not back away from that. It's not an unusual situation for men to be in, to see very clearly the beam in their brother, the moat in their brother's eye, and to miss the beam that is in their own. I think that was what Job did here. So let's look at chapter 28 then in detail. Verses 1 to 11, Job describes mining the earth for precious things. 
That, that whole paragraph, verses 1 to 11, is, is about this, this industry of mining. And he makes really, I think, two points about it. First of all, he makes the point that this work that men do is very difficult and dangerous and uh, work, and work that inquires, requires a great deal of ingenuity, wisdom, on the part of men. He says, men go where the king of beasts, the lion, cannot go. They see where the keenest sight that of the eagle cannot see. They see more than any other living creature, therefore, because they're burrowing down into the earth, digging into the earth, and they're hanging by ropes there as they're down there in the earth or descending into the earth to do their mining work. They're, they're doing very difficult, strenuous, dangerous labor, and it requires a great deal of ingenuity on their part, but the fruit of their labor is that they bring hidden things forth to the light. Verse 11, he dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth to light. He brings out of the earth then silver and gold and iron and copper and sapphires and so on. He he brings up out of the earth all these precious and valuable things. That's the second point that Joe makes. So this is what mining is. And he says, and now... I want you to understand that the search for wisdom is like that. Man is looking for something exceedingly valuable when he looks for wisdom. Notice how he emphasizes the value of wisdom in verses 15 to 19. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. So man is looking for something very valuable when he searches for wisdom, just as when he mines the earth, searching for all these precious things. But the problem is, that he doesn't ever find it. When he mines the earth and does all this strenuous work in the earth to bring these precious things out, he has fruit for his labor. But when he searches for wisdom, he doesn't find it. Where can wisdom be found? Verse 12. And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. See that? It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. He can go to the bottom of the sea and not find wisdom. There's no place here on earth that he can go to find wisdom. And again in verses 20 to 22, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Man cannot find it. Even the birds who see more than any other creature uh, of earth and heaven, they can fly over the seas, they can examine the farthest corners of the earth where man cannot even go. The birds cannot find it. It's hidden from the eyes of all living. Destruction and death say, 
We've heard a report about it with our ears. That's the closest man can get to finding wisdom in this world. Destruction and death will say we have heard a report about it with our ears. And the idea there may be very like the idea of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, I think it is. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And also, in chapter 7, of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says it's better to go to the funeral home than anywhere else. Death and destruction give us hints of wisdom. Death and destruction say to us, I've heard a report about it with our ears, but still man cannot find it. And then in verses 23 and following, God knows. God understands its way, and he knows its place. He looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens. He sees more even than the birds see. And his wisdom, it is by his wisdom then, that he establishes a weight for the wind and apportions the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. So God, by wisdom, made and governs the universe. God understands wisdom. He's the one who saw it, he declared it, he prepared it, he searched it out, he does all these things. Wisdom is altogether with him. But as for man, what is his wisdom? His wisdom is not to understand the wisdom of God. His wisdom is not to understand God's ways in making a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. His wisdom is not to understand God's ways with men. To man, the Lord said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So what Job is talking about here is two different kinds of wisdom, isn't he? He's saying there's a wisdom of God that we can see in his making and governing of all things, that we can see the edge of, if we may go back to Job's prior speech, in his ways, but we see only the edge of it. We're never going to understand the wisdom of God completely. We're never going to penetrate even very deeply into that wisdom of God. Where can wisdom be found? That wisdom is impossible to man. It is hidden from man altogether. But there is a wisdom which men have, which God teaches men, and that wisdom is not to understand his ways, but to fear him and to depart from evil. That's a very profound conclusion. 
The wisdom for man is not understanding the ways of God. Wisdom for man is fearing God, humbling ourselves before Him. Humbling ourselves under His mighty hand and departing from evil. But the problem for Job is that he's lost his spiritual balance. He he has a profound understanding. He shows a profound understanding of wisdom here in chapter 28. And yet he's very, he, he can't seem to apply it to himself. He can apply it to his friends. He can say to his friends, look, you think you understand the ways of God? No one does. But when it comes to himself, he says, I don't understand the ways of God. And he admits that he doesn't. But he's desperate to do so. And he complains that God is being unjust to him because he doesn't understand. He's lost his spiritual balance. Look at chapter 30. This is part of the continuation of Job's speech. Chapter 30, verses 20 to 22. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me. But you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success. He's still complaining to God about his ways with him. Verses 30 and 31. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. He's in the same place he was way back in chapter 3. In chapter 31, verse 35 as well. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. So he's still bitter in soul. Because of the ways of God with him. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on this passage, I think has a very an excellent section on it. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but a short paragraph from it. He says, how we respond to this verse, that is verse 28 of chapter 28, is a litmus test for our hearts. And he's saying that is crucial to the whole book. God directs our attentions away from our agonized questions and toward himself. He does not take us by the hand and lead us to the answers. Notice that. He does not take us by the hand and lead us to the answers. Rather, he beckons us to bow before the Lord himself, who knows the answers, but chooses not to tell us. Our eyes are directed away from the search for the architecture of the universe, that is, and toward the person of the architect. We ask... Why doesn't God answer my question? To which he replies, Turn your gaze and your inquiry away from the answer you want and toward the God you must seek. If you want to live in this world as a wise person, a man or woman of understanding, rather than a fool, do not seek wisdom for its own sake, 
For if you were to find it, you would become a puffed-up know-it-all. Do not seek wisdom, seek the Lord. This is deeply humbling. And that's the point here then for Job and his friends. Job maintains his integrity, and I think we may say he rightly maintains his integrity. He stands as one righteous before God in the blood of atonement, and he's confident in the blood of atonement. His problem is that he can't understand God's ways with him. So he will not consent to the interpretation of events given by his friends, but he wants and insists on an interpretation of the events from God himself. And God's answer to him is, it's not going to be given to you. The wisdom of man is not to understand the ways of God. The wisdom of man is to fear God and depart from evil. May God bless you with his word.